we've covered a lot in a short time, and uh, I hope it's been good. I hope you've been well fed. We're going to look at eight verses this morning in chapter 27 of Exodus. The, the title of my sermon is Salvation Through Sacrifice, and we're going to trace that theme later from Genesis onto the Gospels. So salvation through sacrifice, the big idea, fellowship with God demands sacrifice. Fellowship with God demands sacrifice. Let me start with this question. Um, what do people typically see when they pull into your driveway? What's on display? Um, when I was a youth pastor in Washington State, there was a family. They had seven kids, big sports family. You would pull into their driveway, and they had their own outdoor basketball court. I mean, it was really nice, a big fence all the way around it. I mean, just a really nice court, nice goals. It was obvious this was a sports family, not just a sports family, but a basketball family. All the kids played. The parents invested a lot of time and money in basketball for these kids. Or maybe, like in East Texas, you pull up to a house and you see a bass boat and maybe some side-by-sides. And you think, that's an outdoor family, right? That, that, that family enjoys being on the lake. They enjoy being in the woods, hunting, fishing. It's obvious, right? You can tell a lot about a family based upon these first impressions. The reason I ask this is, if you were listening carefully, you've been following along, when you walk into the courtyard of the tabernacle, what is the first thing that you see? It's a large bronze altar. And we know altars were used in the context of worship. They were for sacrifice. What was being emphasized here was the necessity of sacrifice for entrance into the presence of God. Now, I want to review last week. I, don't be upset with me. I, the, the further we go, it's going to be harder to give you a full summary of the past three, four, five, six weeks. And so what I want to do this morning is really just summarize last week. So last week, we stepped back. So this section that we've been in with the tabernacle, it begins with some of the furnishings, the furniture, the items, right? And we started with the Ark of the Covenant, and then we looked at the table for bread, and then the golden lampstand. Then last week, we stepped back and talked about the tabernacle as a whole, this giant tent. So I want to focus on two questions quickly. What does the tabernacle teach us about God? What did we learn last week? Number one, God is holy. God is holy. Two, and, and this is a huge theme in Scripture, God takes the initiative. God takes the initiative. Three, God desires fellowship with his people, and not only that, but he provides a way for that fellowship to happen. Those are some of the things we looked at last week with the tabernacle. And then another question we looked at last week was, how does the tabernacle point to Christ in the gospel? Well, with the tabernacle, the Lord comes down. Amen? Again, that's a huge theme in Scripture. Even before we get to Exodus, the Lord comes down. He takes the initiative to save his people and be with his people. And of course, we see the ultimate example in the incarnation where God becomes man in Jesus Christ, right? The second person of the Trinity, the Son of Man, the Son of God. The Word becomes flesh and tabernacles among us. We also looked at last week the veil. You know, there's all these layers in the tabernacle which really show us that God is holy. We can't just enter the tabernacle on our own terms, right? We have to enter on God's terms. And these layers of separation reveal that God is holy. 
But what happens when Jesus dies? The veil is what? The veil that, that separated the holy place from the most holy place is torn from top to bottom. And I mentioned this last week, and this is really cool. If you weren't here, Mark's gospel begins and ends with a tear. At Jesus' baptism, it says that the heavens are torn open and the Spirit of God descends on Jesus, right? That's from Isaiah 64.1. Isaiah, praise God, rend the heavens and come down. Save us. And that happens at the beginning of Mark's gospel. In the end of Mark's gospel, what do we see? When Jesus dies, the veil is torn. There's a double tear in Mark's gospel. The Lord comes down to save his people and make a way for us sinners to have fellowship with the holy God. Now, we've been asking four questions every week of the different items or furnishings in the tabernacle. What are they? Number one, what is it? What is this particular item? Two, what is its purpose? Three, what does it teach us about God? And number four, how does it point to Jesus and the gospel? So again, we're looking at the bronze altar. Right away, you should notice something different. Everything thus far, every furnishing has been composed of what metal? Gold. And in here, we have a different metal, a less precious metal. It's bronze. So it's the bronze altar. Question number one, what is it? What is it? Well, the bronze altar was the first and largest furnishing one would encounter once inside the courtyard of the tabernacle. The altar itself declared the tabernacle and its court to be a place of what? A place of worship. It was where sacrifice happened. It represented God's gracious provision of atonement, restoration, reconciliation for his people. Now, it's interesting, and maybe you haven't noticed this, but it's interesting that the Lord begins his instructions for the tabernacle with items found on the inside and then works his way out. He starts with the goal and then shows us how to get there. Isn't that interesting? Because the goal is being with God. The goal is God's presence, and and then he shows us how to get there. It's through sacrifice. Well, let me just give you some simple things. The bronze altar was a square altar composed of acacia wood. It was seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet, so it was square, and then it was four and a half feet tall. On each of the four corners of the altar, there were these horns, and you may be wondering, what are, what are, the, what are the purpose of the horns? Is that for decoration? Uh, maybe, but most likely, as far as a pragmatic, practical reason, it was for binding the meat from the sacrifice on the altar. The altar itself was to be overlaid with bronze. There was a bronze grating about halfway down for holding the sacrifice, and there were bronze utensils. Four bronze rings were attached to each of the four corners, and with them, two poles of acacia wood overlaid with bronze for transporting the altar. Again, we got to remember this is a portable temple. They're headed somewhere. Where are they going? They're going to the land of promise. So the bronze altar, of course, the, the clearest purpose, and we're about to get to number two, what's an altar for? When you see an altar, what comes to mind? Sacrifice, right? It was, it was for sacrificing, which brings us to question two. What is its purpose? What is the purpose of the bronze altar? The bronze altar was the answer to the question, 
How can an unholy people dwell in the midst of a holy God? What did the bronze altar communicate? Now, its placement outside the tabernacle or tent of meeting was intentional. Don't you see? The, the way to fellowship with God was through what? But before you even get to the tabernacle, you're, you, you come face to face with this massive bronze altar. What is it communicating? The way to fellowship with God was through sacrifice. And not just any sacrifice, but a substitutionary sacrifice. A sacrifice in place of others. What happened is animals without blemish were killed in place of God's people and then cooked over the altar in God's presence. And after this, the, the animal sacrifice would be consumed by the worshiper, which symbolized sharing a meal with God. As Doug Stewart writes, through this process, the Israelite worshiper learned over and over again the concept of substitutionary atonement and of covenant renewal. This meal was God's way for God's people to renew their commitment to their covenant with the Lord. The bronze altar did essentially four things. There's four purposes, four things that this big altar communicated, conveyed. Number one, a reminder. Two, renewal. Three, rescue. Four, restoration. A, it was a reminder. The bronze altar was a reminder. It reminded God's people of their need and their problem. It's the first thing they saw whenever they entered the courtyard. They see this big seven and a half foot by seven and a half foot, four and a half feet tall bronze altar. It was a reminder of their need and their problem. Who likes to be reminded of their problems? Nobody raised their hand. I'm not surprised by that. You know, this was made even more clear by the fact that the bronze altar stood between the worshiper and the tabernacle. The only way to get into God's presence was through what? Through sacrifice. The way in, the means of communion with God, the way into his presence was through sacrifice. And this wasn't simply a reminder of Israel's need, but more specifically the reason for their need. The reason they needed a substitutionary sacrifice, which again just means a sacrifice in their place, was due to the fact that they were what? They were unholy. They were sinful. As Tony Merida writes, this is a great quote, he says, the massive size of the altar confronted them with the massive gap between them and God. It was a big honking reminder that you're a needy people. You're a people in need. You can't just go into God's presence. Because you're sinful, because you're unholy, sacrifice has to happen in your place. So that's the first thing. The first purpose, a reminder. It served as a visible reminder. Number two, renewal. This is really helpful, renewal. Now, as mentioned already, the sacrifice of an animal okay, and the subsequent meal shared with the Lord served as a covenant renewal ceremony. Now, again, a covenant is what? 
To enter into a covenant denotes relationship, and we've talked about this between God. God initiates the covenant between himself and Israel, a relationship built on promises, but there's also conditions, right? Do these things, and you'll live. Don't do these things, and you're going to be cursed. There's going to be punishment. But this meal, the, the sacrifice, and the subsequent meal enjoyed by the worshiper in the presence of God, it was a covenant renewal ceremony. Now, that might sound strange. But it's not foreign to us. Let me tell you how and why. If you're married, raise your hands if you're married. Every time, and I'm going to use a euphemism here, every time you come together with your spouse, it serves as a covenant renewal act. The oneness, you're coming together as one. It is a covenant renewal act. Right? When you're married, you enter into a covenant with your spouse. And when you come together, it is a covenant renewal act. Now, as Christians, when we gather for the Lord's Supper, it serves as a covenant renewal ceremony, a way of affirming together our faith in Christ and our faith in the efficacy, the effectiveness of the cross. We're essentially saying when we take the Lord's Supper, Jesus, we believe that the cross worked, that your death in our place worked, that through you, Jesus, we now enjoy fellowship with God because our sins have been forgiven through and in you. Amen? So the the bronze altar represented a place of covenant renewal. As the Israelites presented a substitute and enjoyed the meat from it, they were, in a sense, recommitting themselves to the Lord and his word. Third, third purpose is rescue. Rescue. So again, I like alliteration, the first, a reminder, then renewal, third, and I think the most significant is rescue. More than anything, the bronze altar represented God's gracious provision of rescue for his people. The only way, everybody say the only way. We got to get that. The only way back into God's presence was through the shedding of blood. God's people, unholy and sinful, were deserving of what? Death. On the bronze altar, a living thing died. This is significant. A living thing died in place of God's people, taking the punishment they deserved for the sins they committed so that they could be spared. Recall Hebrews 9.22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I want to take a moment, and I mentioned this earlier. I alluded to it. I want to take a moment, and I want us to highlight and trace the theme of rescue through substitution across the pages of Scripture. As our brother prayed, I mean, the Old Testament declares the gospel. The Old Testament points to Jesus, right? This theme that Christ fulfills is found all throughout the Old Testament. Salvation through substitution. Now, where do we see it? We see it in Exodus in multiple places, but I want to go all the way back to Genesis 3. What happens in Genesis 3? It's a day of infamy. It's the fall. Adam and Eve disobey God. Sin and death come into the world. But listen to what the Lord says to the serpent. He's talking about 
the offspring of Eve, the seed from the woman. And what does the Lord say? God says He will crush your head. Yeah! Right? I mean, come on, evil's going to be vanquished. But you will strike His heel. Okay, so salvation through death, right? I mean, this offspring of Eve, this seed of Eve is going to represent God's people. And he's going to deal with evil, but at the cost of his very life. Salvation through substitution. Genesis 22. It's a hard chapter, right? Genesis 22, God asks Abraham. I mean, God finally gives Abraham and Sarah, the son of promise, Isaac. They're happy. They're rejoicing. And by the way, Abraham, I want me to take that son on top of a mountain and sacrifice him to me. What? What? Did anybody see that coming? Of course not. But Abraham trusts the Lord. He has resurrection faith, right? Read about that in Romans, Galatians. And so... He goes to the mountain, and as the knife is being raised, very dramatically, what happens? Stop! God provides a ram, a substitute in place of Isaac. Isaac is spared. The ram is killed in place of the son of promise. And of course, we've been in Exodus, Exodus 12, the Passover lamb, the final plague, the death of the firstborn. But not for Israel, because God provides a substitute. Take a lamb without blemish, kill it, take the blood, smear it over the doorpost, and I'll pass over you. I won't destroy you, your firstborn. Salvation through substitution. And then Leviticus 16, oh, the day of atonement, right? There's two goats, one as a sin offering that's killed in place of God's people, and then you have the scapegoat. And the priest would put his hands on the goat, symbolically transferring the sin of God's community onto the goat. And then the goat will be sent out of the community, bearing the sins of God's people as a substitute. Salvation through substitution. And then we read in Isaiah 53, verse 5. Oh, this glorious promise. But he, the suffering servant, was pierced. He's going to be pierced for our transgressions. He's going to be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace, he's going to take in our place. And by his wounds, we're going to be healed. Oh, that sounded very good. I mean, that sounds familiar. Someone's going to be pierced and crushed. Someone is going to bear the punishment we deserve in our place so that we can be forgiven and made right with God. And if you don't know who these passages point to, and who that promise refers to. Let's just go to the New Testament. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And then Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's going to take our sin in our place and then give us his righteousness. So we've looked at the bronze altar as a reminder, renewal, rescue, and finally restoration. Now, I need you to really pay attention here, okay? This is deep. This is good. But pay attention. If you're tired, wake up. Nudge your neighbor. Don't slap them. If you have extra coffee, give him a, a swig. And, okay, we're good. All right. 
restoration. Now, this is really cool, but pay attention here. I saw some little guys drinking coffee. They start them early. That's fine. <laughs> Numerous scholars see the tabernacle. This is so beautiful, man. You're just going to love this. Numerous scholars see the tabernacle and its courtyard as a microcosm, or better word, a miniature of God's world. Okay, so think of the tabernacle and the courtyard as a representative, as a model of God's good big world that he made, the heavens and the earth. And this point is going to look beyond the bronze altar, but it's certainly going to refer to it. So again, we're meant to see the tabernacle and the courtyard as a representation or model of the whole world. But why? Not yet. We'll come to that. But I want to make my case first. Where do we see this? So follow me here. All right. So the outer court, right, the courtyard, this was a big courtyard. It was, um, what, 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. That's a good space, right? You can do a lot in that space. The outer court stands for the earthly world with the bronze altar representing the mountains, and specifically Mount Sinai. The laver, and, and we'll look at that soon, but after you got past the bronze altar, you have this big washing basin. It held water. So the laver, or bronze basin, represented the waters. And then the space around the laver represented the dry land. And then you got the holy place, right? So you go into the tent, the tabernacle. In the holy place, what, what color fabric do we see? We see blues and we see purples. That represented the sky. And then you have the golden lampstand, which represented the luminaries, the stars and the sun and the moon. The whole thing, the tabernacle and its furnishings and the courtyard looked ahead to the day when God's whole world would become his sanctuary. When his glory would fill the whole earth. And if you're a Christian and you know the Bible, you know that is where the story is headed. One day his glory is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. As Tom Schreiner notes, the tabernacle anticipates the day when the earth will be God's temple. Again, this is where history is headed. And the tabernacle served to preview this. As a miniature of the world, it was God's way of saying, I plan to one day redeem the whole world. Let me just read some Old Testament passages here. Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 11.9. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In Revelation 21, 1 and 2, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Again, here's, here's the point. We are to view God's tabernacle as God's pledge to bring his heavenly rule to earth. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you believe that one day God is going to rule over the cosmos? Evil's going to be gone. 
No more sickness, no more death. We're going to reign with our king forever in glory. It's true. And the tabernacle was a preview of that. What God was doing in this space, he would one day do in all space. Make sense? God's good world, marred by sin, would one day be restored as the place where God rules perfectly over his people and where his glory beautifully fills it up. And I long for that day. And it's coming, amen? This is cool. The tabernacle and the way it was ordered, right? I mean, does God do anything without purpose? Say it in Spanish. No. It's very good. The tabernacle, the way it was ordered, told the story of rescue. It told the exodus. Let me show you how. This is good. The altar. What's the first thing you see when you walk into the courtyard? This big bronze altar. The altar reminded God's people of what? What do you think? What happened on the altar? Animals were slaughtered and sacrificed. So the altar was a reminder of Passover, the provision of a sacrificial lamb. The bronze basin was a reminder of what? The Red Sea, where God's people would pass through the waters. The holy place with its bread was a reminder of God's provision of manna from heaven while they wandered in the desert. And finally, the tabernacle as a whole with the golden lampstand and the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence, fellowship with God, which is the ultimate goal of God's rescue. He rescues us for the purpose of fellowship. So again, the tabernacle as a whole was a reminder of God's story of rescue. It was a visible reminder. Don't we need reminders? Why do we take the Lord's Supper to be Reminded. Why do we gather every Lord's Day to be reminded of who God is and what he's done through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? All right, number three. What does it, the bronze altar, teach us about God? Three things here, A, B, and C. A, God is gracious. Oh, he's gracious, amen? We've already learned that without the shedding of blood, Without sacrifice, there can be no what? There can be no forgiveness. The sacrificial system, albeit temporary, right? This is, thankfully, it wasn't to last. It pointed to something greater. But the sacrificial system, although it was temporary, was God's temporary provision for his people to allow them to be in his presence. So what does the bronze altar teach us about God? He's gracious. He's gracious. B, he's faithful. God is faithful. If you know the Abrahamic promise, one of the P's, right? There's a people and a place, but it's also God's presence. God promised his presence. Part of God's promise to his people was his presence. God made a way through the bronze altar and the sacrifices upon it to be with his people. Amen? So God said, I'll be with you, and God made a way for him to be with his people. God is faithful. God promised he'd do something. He does it. What does that teach us about God? He's what? He's faithful. So he's gracious. He's faithful. And see, we've seen this every week thus far. God is holy. Oh, God is holy. Now, holiness simply means set-apartness. It refers to God's uniqueness. There's no one like him. Okay? There's even a word in the Greek that's used of Jesus. It's monogeneus. 
He is the unique, one-of-a-kind son. He's holy. This aspect of God's character, his holiness, was emphasized by the different materials used for the things inside the tabernacle versus those things that were made on the outside. So what have we learned before this week? All the furnishings within the tabernacle were made of what metal? Gold, right? Which emphasized God's abundant worth, his royal character. He's a king. He's the king. And the outside furnishings were composed of bronze, a less expensive metal. As one brother writes, the the courtyard is more earthy in character, whereas God's dwelling place is more heavenly in character. And this is further conveyed by the altar itself being outside of the tabernacle. Again, God's people couldn't just waltz into the holy place or the most holy place. To do that would invite what? Death. They could not enter God's presence on their own terms, but whose terms? God's terms. Why? Because God is holy and we are what? Unholy. And therefore our unholiness had to be dealt with. All right, number four. Number four. How does the bronze altar point to Jesus in the gospel? A few things here. A, oh man. Jesus came to make the unclean clean. Amen? Jesus came to make the unclean clean. The tabernacle, and especially the bronze altar for sacrifices, reveals our what? Remember, it was a reminder. That was the second question. What's its purpose? It's a reminder. A reminder of our need. A reminder of our state. The fact that sacrifice is necessary is a reminder that we're what? We're unholy. We're unclean. I'm currently walking through the Gospel of Mark with a large group of brothers. And you know what we see in Mark's Gospel? This is so good. Jesus confronts uncleanness. He touches it. Now in this culture, right, and I'm talking about not people that are just stanky and dirty. We're talking about being ritually unclean, unfit for God's presence, unfit to be around God's people, right? I mean, if you had uh, a discharge or leprosy or if someone was dead, if you touched them, you would become what? Unclean, but not Jesus. And that's is what's so interesting. He dares to touch these people, okay? He approaches them and he touches them. And rather than Jesus becoming unclean, those that he touches become what? They become clean. Why is this? That's remarkable, by the way, right? Why is this? Because Jesus came to take our uncleanness. He came to wear it upon himself. He came to bear it, which demanded what? What had to happen to him? He had to die. What we've learned so far regarding the bronze altar is that sacrifice is the way, it is the way into God's presence. Fellowship with God demands a substitute in the shedding of this substitute's blood. I recently told our, this was this past Wednesday, I told our adult Wednesday night Bible study how much I love Leviticus. And they're like, oh, really? I really do. I love, I just finished reading it, the book of Leviticus. Maybe you're thinking, Chris, why do you like Leviticus? Now, if you haven't read Leviticus, be, be wary. It is a bloody book. It is quite gory. 
It's full of sacrifices, animals being slaughtered in place of God's people. And this had to be done regularly. You see, the the blood of bulls and goats didn't have the power, the ability to atone once and for all for God's people. So these sacrifices had to be maintained. They had to be repeated. Now, the reason I love, I love the book of Leviticus is because it reminds me of how thankful I am for who? For Jesus, the once and for all sacrifice. Leviticus, yes, it reveals our need for Jesus, but it points to him as well. The Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Let me read quickly Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 14, and then I'm going to jump to Hebrews 10, 11 to 14. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. I mean, right there we can just stop and praise God and invite Dave up and let's keep singing. But not yet. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctified them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? All right, now I'm going to jump to chapter 10, Hebrews 10, 11 to 14. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But, and I love the buts of Scripture. Ephesians 2, 4, right? It's a great example. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And all God's people said, Amen. Oh. So again, the question, how does the bronze altar point to Jesus in the gospel? Jesus, A, came to make the unclean clean. Are you thankful? If you're in Christ, you're clean. He took our uncleanness, we get his cleanness. He took our unholiness, we get his holiness. He took our unrighteousness, we get his righteousness. B, the second thing is Jesus is the altar. Jesus fulfills every furnishing, every item points to him. We've already talked about that up to this point. Jesus is the place of sacrifice, the place of atonement or atonement, right? Bringing together two, making them one. He came to make a way for sinners, us, to be brought back into fellowship with God through the shedding of his blood. And only through trusting in Jesus, who died for sinners, can we have access to God. As Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The bronze altar recalls the sacrificial system, and more specifically, the lamb of sacrifice in place of God's people, which brings us to the third thing I want to talk about. How does the bronze altar point to Christ in the gospel? See, Jesus is the Lamb of God. 
He is the Lamb of God. Now, where in the New Testament is Jesus recognized as the sacrifice or Lamb of God? And hopefully, like, like thing, you're just like recalling passages right now as I ask that question. Let me give you four or five. John 1.29, it reads, The next day John, this is J.B., John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For you know, Peter says, that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the, the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us in our place. Salvation through substitution. One more. 1 John 2, 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Uh, The ESV, he is the propitiation. And that word is interesting. It, It means something receives wrath in place of others, right? So God's wrath was satisfied. We deserved it. I've used the image of a wrath sponge. What does a sponge do? It absorbs. Jesus is our wrath sponge. He absorbed God's wrath for us in our place. Amen? Satisfying God's wrath so that we could be forgiven. The New Testament writers, inspired by the Spirit of God, go to great lengths to show us that Jesus is, in fact, the once and for all sacrifice, the one who died so that we could live forever with him. He died to make a way, the way, the way. So what do we do with Exodus 27, 1 to 8? What do we do with this as Christians today? Recall the three R's from last week. What were they? Do you remember? Rejoice, rest, and report. Maybe you're thinking, Chris, we, we talked about those things last week. I did. Of course I did. Are you doing them? Or do you think it'd be good to be reminded of these things again? I do. How do we respond to God's word? We rejoice. I mean, what have we learned? We've learned that salvation comes through sacrifice. And Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice in place of sinners. And if you trust in him, you now are brought into God's presence. You're forgiven. That should cause us to do what? Rejoice. What about resting? Is it up to us? Do we have to do anything to earn it? Can we earn it? No. We can simply rest in who Christ is and what he's done. He did it all. We can rest in that. Now, again, good news is meant to be retold. It's meant to be shared, right? And so not only should we rejoice, not only should we rest, but we should report. We should tell others the good news that Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice, that through Jesus, sinners like us can be brought into God's presence for how long? Forever. Forever. Uh, Let me end with this and I'll pray. Who likes going to the car wash? I know, Clark does. Okay, so I'm not talking about the one where you pull in and you get out and you got the sprayer. I mean, I like that. I I do. But I like telling stories. And so I like the drive-through. And I imagine that we're in a submarine with my kids. I have three kids under eight. 
and we're in a submarine, and we're going into the ocean, we're exploring, and a sea monster is attacking our vehicle. <laughs> and they get scared, but they kind of love it as well. And so, um, why am I, where's, where am I going with this story? Sea monsters and car washes. Um, the thing I like about these car washes, there's only one way in. You're, I mean, you, you have to go to the booth, you've got to put in your card, you've got to push the button. No, I don't want, no, no upgrades. Stop, I want the simple car wash. I don't want to pay $40, just... Simple car wash, no upgrade, okay, good. All right, get my little ticket, the little bar opens up, and you drive through, and you come out different, right? There's one way in, and you come out different. And you're saying, Chris, are you using a car wash illustration to tell the gospel? Yes, I am. (laughs) Yes. Here's why. Recall the ordering of the tabernacle. What's the first thing you see when you come in to the court? Oh, man, if you don't get this one, then. Oh, good, okay, a bronze altar, that's what we've been talking about today. So once, listen, listen, once you enter the courtyard, you find a bronze altar, which is the place of sacrifice. Next, you have the bronze basin, the place of cleansing. And finally, you come to the tabernacle, the place of fellowship with God. Sacrifice, cleansing, fellowship. Sacrifice because of Jesus' sacrifice, those who trust in him are cleansed and now enjoy fellowship, a relationship with God forever. And all God's people said, amen. amen, through sacrifice, through the sacrifice of Jesus, his death on the cross in our place, we who trust in him are cleansed and we now enjoy fellowship with God. For how long? Forever, forever. So yes, you can use a car wash, but more importantly, I would say use the tabernacle to tell the gospel story. Through sacrifice, there is cleansing in fellowship with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that we see from Genesis to Revelation. We thank you for the climax of that good news in your son, Jesus, who lived and died and rose again to save sinners like us. We thank you that you don't leave us without hope. You don't leave us without promise. And Father, Jesus is proof of that. We thank you that that Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live. And he died the sacrificial death in our place on the cross, bearing your wrath, taking the punishment for our sin that we deserve in our place so that by trusting in him, we can be forgiven. We can be right with you, God. And we thank you that three days later, Jesus was raised, which is the proof that the cross worked in a way has been made for sinners like us to be brought back into fellowship with you, Lord. I pray that in response to this passage, your word, the good news, that we would rejoice, that we would rest, and that we would report. Father, make us aware right now of friends, classmates, co-workers, neighbors, family members who don't know you, who are lost, who have not looked to Jesus for cleansing, who are still lost and dead in their sins. Father, remind us of those people and give us the boldness to go to them and to report to them the good news that through Jesus, salvation is found, that through Jesus, life with God is available. So Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for your church. Holy Spirit, take what we've heard, apply it to our hearts, and Father, make us more like the Son. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said,